This is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, podcast number 60, I think. Um, I better check that, actually. Uh, but I think this is podcast number 60. Um, and with me in Toronto is Corey Morningstar. Hi, Corey. Hi. Uh, Johan Edebo in Sweden. Hi, Johan. Good night. Uh, and in Long Island, New York, Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, John. Hi. Uh, Varun Mather can't be with us, uh, which is too bad, but he will be next time. Uh, and I am here in freezing Norway, uh, icy and freezing Norway. Uh, so, uh, there, you know, there's been a number of interesting things over the last couple of weeks since we since we last did one of these uh and it's always a question where to begin but Corey, let's let's talk a little bit since you're in canada and that's kind of the the uh the center of a lot of intense stuff right now so okay um, well um on saturday i guess i listened to a really great um one hour interview with a mohawk um war chief who actually lives not that far away from me and it, i posted that i shared that on twitter and on my facebook account unfortunately because he's not a manufactured greta it doesn't get the you know tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of shares that it should but it's actually on such what he talks about is so important, especially in the context of what's happening, you know, and they, they actually see exactly what's happening. The first nations, um, all of it, every aspect of it. And where a lot of people, especially, you know, in the self-identified left spectrum and all of that are really blind to a lot that's happening. Anyway, I listened to that. And then um, I was listening to a couple of, days ago or yesterday another um good interview on basically the history of of canada and you know the british empire and that type of thing and and i you know started thinking of that in combination with um the mohawk war chiefs um comments you know where where they see what's happening to us now is just an extension of what's happened to them right like now they're um, colonizing everyone's everyone's land and body. It's like you don't have to be indigenous or, or brown or black, right? It's coming for everyone, and it sort of invokes that whole, you know, that thing. First they came for me, right? That whole. Mm. Um, anyway, sorry, I know I'm bouncing around a bit here. So I, I was thinking just how in Canada we forget about that aspect. I mean, if I was to ask people who were even under 30 or especially under 20 you know what the what Britain had to do with Canada they wouldn't even know what I was talking about at all and so yeah. I I went within one of the interviews there uh, um I forget his last name Michael um sorry I have so many tabs open I can't even find it anyway <laughs> he, he there's a clip of the oath that Trudeau gave when he um, was right. put into power right that oath to the queen and it's sort of surreal. I mean, there it is, his allegiance, not to the people, um, citizens, you know, occupying, you know, settler citizens, basically on the stolen land we call Canada, but his allegiance to serve and be faithful, a true servant to her majesty. 
right? And there it is. And it's, it's really sort of gross to, to watch. <laughs> and it's really uncomfortable, you know, and I started to realize how that's just a huge part of, of what's happening is missing. Because if you go back to the beginning, even the launch of the, um, well, first of all, I should explain that the Commonwealth, the British Crown, the British Empire, that um, basically constitutes about a third of the global population. So this is not a small thing we're talking about. It's 54 countries and Canada of all the countries has the largest land mass. Now, when you think about what the Great Reset is, a massive part of that is the um, restructuring the whole global um, capitalist system where, and part of that is the financialization of nature where we will um, basically nature is a new asset class. And so you have all these lands, Canada, Australia, another one, um, New Zealand, Africa. Anyway, another, I'm, I'm gonna go all over the place here because there's just so much I've been looking at in my head. Um, a big <laughs> part of this is um, they have the Commonwealth digital ID working with the World Bank for every every woman and child, which is actually just a campaign. It means everyone by 2030 to have a digital identity. So again, we're back to that. That's a huge part of it. Um, so I, I'm just, basically I started thinking how, and I blame myself um, for this as well. Like I made a mistake, I feel at the beginning, you have World Economic Forum and everybody's very well versed with that and who Klaus Schwab is and what it is and what's happening. And that's all very good and really important to know about all of that, because that's where all the programs are coming out and all the white papers and everything else. But um, right from the beginning, the Great Reset Project itself is a project of Prince Charles of the royal family, like he took that to Klaus Schwab and worked with Klaus Schwab to have the World Economic Forum convene, convene this project, right, using the World Economic Platform, and it's um, Prince Charles, the Bank of America, basically at the helm of this, and World Economic Forum is basically organizes everyone. Mm -hmm. um, so where was I going with that? So I just think that's sort of a huge thing that I mean, for example, 4 million people follow World Economic Forum, and then you have under 4,000 um, that are aware of following the Sustainable Markets Initiative, which right. is Prince Charles's um, thing that he started, <clears throat> right? Um, yeah. and, and so it just goes back to like sort of how Canadians, I mean, I live here, I know this, how we're assimilated into this illusion of freedom that doesn't really exist. And so it's like a theater of electoral politics for public consumption and even our maple leaf flag that was um, put up in Parliament Hill in 1965. That was done in accordance with a formal proclamation um, by Queen Elizabeth, even at that time. And so oh. there's, there's just like a lot of um, stuff happening in the background that no one's seeing at all. Right. And mm. and um God, I don't know, maybe you guys want to jump in there. Like basically this whole thing, it, this is not about a pandemic, okay? So this, and I know we say, we've talked about this a million times, but this is COVID harness as catalyst to usher in fourth industrial revolution um, architecture as the global capitalist system teetered on the brink of collapse, right? And so here we have a new system being built and compliance is being built into the very core of this new system. 
And so right now you've got people scrambling, you've got politicians scrambling in Canada, um, a lot of them backing up um, on the mandates and backing up on the vaccine passports. But if you look, um, Canada actually has a digital identity plan that they've been working on for over a decade. And with that, you have all the same institutions. You've got, you know, MasterCard, Visa, you've got all the banks, you've got a hundred corporations involved in that. So that's not going, and, and they, um, this, this organization, I'll just find the name here, on the digital identification and, and authentic, I can't say that word, authentic, can you guys help me out with that? Authentic. <laughs> What's the word? So, uh, let's just call it the acronym um, DAC. Um, right. It, it's just digital ID, right? Council Canada. Um, that's not going to go away. They contribute to the World Economic Forum on white papers, on global digital ID, on the future digital ID. This is not just going to go away. And so there's also um, a, um, a danger of people getting comfortable and thinking we won when mandates are dropped, when this is not going anywhere except for full steam ahead this digital identity. And if they can't do it through vaccine passports, they will just find other ways to do it and will be coerced because their services will be cut off, right? And they've done that just in the past day or two. Actually, I think it was yesterday, Trudeau um, put in the emergency act, right? For Ontario and now they can actually seize anyone's bank, their, their bank, um, their money, their funds. They don't need a court order. They can just put a freeze on it. And so it's sort of, this is where all this is headed, where all this is going. And I think we're just getting conditioned to it all, you know, literally right. day by day, well, day by day. I, I, I think that's, <clears throat> I think that's an, an important point. Uh, and I was thinking about that today that, that, and a lot of us suggested this was going to happen, uh, that, when the restrictions were rolled back, when they stopped, people, you know, could now travel and do, you know, go out to restaurants and et cetera, et cetera. They didn't have to wear masks. Um, that that it, the illusion would be that everything had returned to normal when, in fact, a lot of restrictions, a lot of loss of civil liberties and so forth uh, were not going to return to normal. They were going to remain in place, not to mention the extraordinary amount of, of normalizing of these emergency measures had now been internalized by people. Uh, and there's a whole discussion to be had. I mean, in Norway, you know, there's no restrictions now whatsoever about anything. Uh, and yet they introduced a bill in government and Paul Steigen, who everybody should read, uh, even if you have to Google translate it, um, has an article about it today, which essentially gives the government the power to call state of emergency whenever they want and implement any form of uh, extreme safety measures uh, that they deem um, you know, useful uh, and, and unnecessary. Uh, so, so essentially it is, it is the complete destruction of any, any democratic process to, you know, that the government now has the right will be enshrined in the constitution to declare a state of emergency when they want and then do whatever they want. Um, <clears throat> I also, 
I was rereading Maximilian Forte's, Max Forte's piece, several pieces on the COVID uh, story uh, over at Zero Anthropology. But he, he uh, quotes a Dutch uh, economist and author whose name I will mispronounce, uh, Ad Broer. And I want to read you um, <clears throat> the English translation of what this guy said. It's very short. He said, I think the coronavirus is just one part of an action that has now been set in motion that really just pulls the strings tighter from the position of those who are in power at the moment and who want to retain that power, whatever the cost, and who have certain ideas about what to do with that power, who have a vision of humanity and the future of humanity, which they want to bring about in reality. A few people are going to determine our future, effectively taking away our right to self-determination, effectively leading us toward a goal set by them with no regard for us. And that's close quote there. That's the extent. Um, and, and I think that because I, I've been listening and reading a lot of people this week uh, who, who hold uh, a more mainstream position, who, who have agreed with um, the lockdown measures, for example, uh, who who believe that lockdowns were absolutely necessary and that this was a, <clears throat> a highly lethal virus and so forth. And one of the things, there's two things that seem to be missing in all of the analyses I read. Um, and one was the, the role that the Great Reset plays in all this, the role that the World Economic Forum plays in it, the role that global NGOs play in it, the role that the extreme multi-billionaire class play in it and their foundations, Gates Foundation and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> it's just missing. It's just absent. They don't make that connection at all. Um, and the second thing is that Yes, in fact, they think this was a very deadly pandemic and no amount of uh, statistical evidence is going to sway them from, from, from that position. Uh, and it's a strange, because so many of these people are leftists, self-identified Marxists, communists, whatever. Um, although it should be noted, many of them, if not the majority of them are academics. Uh, and, and so there is that, and that's a separate discussion, but from people that, that identify as leftists, ostensibly oppositional voices to the status quo, people who are critical of American imperialism and, and are aware of the gross inequality that exists and so forth. Uh, but they trust, they trust the the these global health organizations they trust anything that is said about health and medicine and um uh, the the viruses and the vaccines and all of it um <clears throat> to a degree that i find really quite astonishing i mean there are of course you know left dissenting voices and, and we are among them but i mean there's many others and uh but but I think we are in a minority in a sense. And 
the 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 most I am finding, and I I don't know if this is true, but I'm finding that the majority of people out there who are skeptical out there, out there in television land, um, are are very conservative, are libertarian or conservative, if not reactionary, um, and so they are they are skeptical, but and but because of their political education they arrive at very wrong conclusions and and you know i feel like this is this is the the project in a sense is to educate those people somehow so that one can form alliances with them um because the the residual racism in these in these voices is very difficult to to stand on stage with, you know, to, to form partnerships with, because they hold very, very reactionary positions. And so, and this, this leads into a discussion of the Trump factor, of course, and, and we've talked about that before, but um, Johan. Yeah. Uh, I, I was rereading uh, Adorno's essays on you know, music sociology, pretty, pretty angry bunch of texts. And, and I think there's a, he, he kind of gets to the issue of the, the recuperation thing here here you know he so he tries to explore the character of music as it uh, takes shape in mass society in these texts and basically his overall conclusion is that what well, music has now it's the 1940s already has been reduced to this uh, completely useless commodity that has no capacity whatsoever to challenge people anymore it doesn't help developing our consciousness. It's just basically a, a, an anesthetic that re reproduces market values. And, and I think you have the same problem here with the, the dissenter because the role is already manufactured as a kind of commodity on a market. So you have these very, very narrow circumscribed roles to, 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 to select as a consumer when you want to dissent when you feel like there's something wrong. Right. Right. And no. What is, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking his, his his solution is just okay. We need to make something that breaks out of the logic of, of the commodity logic of mass culture uh, to make art with some kind of explicit purpose of disrupting commodification. But I mean, how how do you do that without? I mean, that's the that's the yeah. problem. <clears throat> well, I mean, that's I think I would like to think I've been. I've been writing for a number of years about that, probably without arriving at a, at a real conclusion or strategy. But yeah, I think that, that this is extremely important. Look, the logic, what, what the Frankfurt School called instrumental reason, yeah. which they saw as the legacy of the Enlightenment and, and a, a kind of overdetermined rationality or something, they saw instrumental thinking um, I mean, they really anticipated the um, the compartmentalized, uh, it, and it, it, it's as if people are always choosing from a menu that's given to them. Yeah. You know, the the drop down box on computers. You know, um, pick A, B, or C. Frequently asked questions, uh, which are never questions that I frequently ask, but. Uh, you you are you know you are given you know a b or c you are given these choices and that this is reproducing uh uh the image of the machine in a certain sense that these are these are mechanical 
um, expressions of a mechanical kind of template for behavior and thinking and and even feeling. And I I wrote about this in the in the my recent blog post that um, <clears throat> the the people in the contemporary West anyway, perhaps globally, have really lost much of the ability to interpret anything. Um, they, this is, you know, also the, what happened with, with the sort of rise of algorithmic conditioning, you know, yeah. and, and um, so, so people don't, they they come from a, a position of a, a very narrow perspective on any particular problem and it is it is to be solved within this this very narrow template of choices that have already prefabricated choices that have already been provided to them and this is of course has become just extraordinarily acute with with the ascension of social media and and dependence on smartphones and all of the rest of it that that we refer to all the time it's now it is simply it exceeds i mean if you read de boer's 1985 comments on the society of the spectacle which he wrote in the 60s uh he was anticipating a lot of this but i you know i often wonder what he would make of 2022 <laughs> Um, because because he saw what where the spectacle was was headed, but I can't imagine that any he or anyone else um, foresaw quite the degree to which which people's thought would be would be so strangulated. Um, Corey and then Johan. Yeah, I think I sort of have something to contribute to that, what you're speaking of. Um, last week, I just put some of the um, numbers that I was following talk about into an article form, I and it's on wrong kind of green. I kept it really concise and simple because I know um, looking at data can overwhelm people. So it's very, very brief. Um, but basically, the same people were at the beginning was like, oh, we have to save every life. And they were so, you know, they used all as leverage to get the whole, um, you know, get people on board for all the restrictions and lockdowns. They used the leverage of not hurting, um, you know, elderly and caring about elderly and all these things, which later no one gave a fuck about the elderly, right? They all died on their own and they're still isolated and they're still dying. Anyway, um, so in this, you know, big quote unquote pandemic, in Canada since the beginning um, for the ages, and this is in the article at the very beginning, for the ages of five to 11. Um, let me just see here. Sorry, from age zero to 11, there were 19 deaths with COVID. So again, like we always talk about that's terminal illnesses and tragic events as that um, age 12 to 19, 10, so 29 deaths and so far, and I haven't looked at it for two weeks. So the number will be way higher by today because the adverse um, events are going up around a thousand a week in Canada. Um, at the beginning, it was around 250 a week, but now it's a thousand. So you have almost 400, actually, the last count is 330 children between the ages of five to 17 that are, um, have been seriously injured, right? Seriously injured by the vaccines, by the um, injections, sorry, not vaccines, the injections. Um, there's more than that. There's almost four, there's around 1400 injuries, but almost 400 
serious, which includes death, right? Those that's the serious category. And yet if people, if all the people that say, Oh, one child with COVID one death with COVID is too many, they they'll look at this and they will not care. They don't care about the, these kids that have been, have died or have been seriously injured by the injections. They don't care. But if it was a COVID death of a child, it would be the biggest news, right? In in the whole, in the whole world. And we'd all be criminals for not getting our injections and everything else. Do you know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. Right. And like, same with, same with, and so I've never really seen this before. Like I knew that, that people generally here um, don't care if brown children, black children are bombed to death in Libya and Yemen and other countries, I knew that. But now this seems to me at least like a relatively new thing where parents here um, care more about their social media um, brand status than they do about children. Like they actually don't give a fuck. I saw some, some artists, some music artists, I don't know who she was, but I saw her with a picture posing with her sick child who she had her arm wrapped oh, I and, saw yeah, that. Yeah. and bragging about how her child is, is having horrible reactions to these injections, but she's, you know, it's for the cause. Yeah. So, and and <clears throat> that's, that's really, um, that's sick. <laughs> it is. It's shocking. My child is surviving torture. She's taking mm. one for the team. Johan. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I saw that as well. I mean, how do you convince somebody like that that she's been wrong here? Uh, but I, I think you can say that a, a COVID death is kind of a, an auxiliary commodity that can be marketed, but but a, a vaccine injury is not. I mean, it's, it's all according to, to this part of, of the potential market logic. But you, you also said something interesting, Corey, regarding the relations and alliances with with first uh, first nations people and i think i mean looking at all of this through the the lens of colonization especially what john just said i think that's very fruitful because i mean colonization is often reduced to this kind of limited phenomenon of, of material exploitation of the of the conquered racialized peoples on the fringes of empire but i mean we have these identical mechanisms taking place here in the heart of the west I mean, colonization is not something anyone escapes ever because it's, it's, I mean, it is the assimilation of a people's autonomy, reducing us to a kind of a resource or, or, a, or a market. So, I mean, well, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. No, no. No, I was just going to say that maybe colonization by what uh, Dimitri Orlo calls the technosphere might be the most fruitful grounds for solidarity in a new sort of class consciousness in the future, maybe. Um, well, I was just reminded, uh, I mean, because so much of this, I, I, I always encouraging people to read Jonathan Beller because I, I think it's so germane, but I ended the last blog post with a quote from Beller that addresses exactly this in a sense. Um, and I'll read it here. Uh, quote, I mean to suggest here that whatever the project of imperialism was, it does not cease in the presence of the fantasy called post-coloniality. Rather, as world poverty indexes readily show, the pauperization process is intensifying. 
the expiration of national boundaries and the so-called obsolescence of the nation state only imply that these national forms are being superseded, sublated, even as they continue to do their work. The thesis here is that cinema and cinematic technologies, television, telecommunications, computing, automation, AI, provide some of the discipline and control once imposed by earlier forms of imperialism, close quote. Let me just get a, a comment from all of you here, because you mentioned the, the, the funds, the, the, the wealthy funds here, John. So I just read that uh, Warren Buffett and Gates were both part of this, this so-called billionaire pledge. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so, so the, the super wealthy are, are ostensibly gathering all of these funds for these, um, these uh, humanitarian projects and all that. But it's same. It's still part of the very same structure. Um, yeah, I read about that. But uh, there's a book by David Callahan. I think that's his name. And it's actually a kind of not very good book um, because he's sort of a, a you know, a groupie um, of, of the very rich lifestyles of the rich and famous. But he has a lot of useful information. And part of the useful information has to do with the degree of wealth that we're talking about here. Um, Gates and Bezos and Buffett and Musk and on and on. Um, and the ones that are lesser known and out of the spotlight. Uh, and, you know, there's maybe, maybe 15, maybe 20, um, whose wealth is just unprecedented. Uh, and these foundations the leverage and pressure they can exert because of their wealth is, is, you know, irresistible is, I mean, they say, okay, if you, if you promote this and this and this, let's say vaccines, you know, gene editing, whatever, we will build you a, you know, a $100 million hospital to study cancer. You know, and we'll be seen as doing good. And that's what you guys, this group of doctors, that's what you guys want. So great. And but in return, you have to do this and this and this. Nobody turns that down. Nobody can turn that down. Um, you see, the goal now is this recolonization of Africa. Um, this is a young population. And so all these these telecommunication giants want to go in there and wire up Africa, Zuckerberg and so forth, Microsoft, Google. And uh, because the better to, to um, disseminate propaganda, the better to sell things um, and the better to exert control and, and coercive um, techniques of one sort or another on a population that uh, is is one of the last not wired populations in the world. So, uh, but this is an irresistible force. I mean, these, no, no country has this kind of money to spend um, where you can just, you know, with, with a single keystroke uh, commit, you know, $500 million, $3 billion, $10 billion. Uh, they, that's what Bezos makes in half a day. I mean, it's extraordinary, right? So uh, this is, this is uh, I think, even though people understand uh, certain catchphrases, you know, the money is being transferred to the top 1% and so forth, all that stuff, they, they don't grasp 
the actual um, uh, hold on here uh, the actual extent of the wealth and and it's I didn't even understand the um, the extent of the wealth but it is an irresistible force of power it's it's something that has to end um, somehow because otherwise uh, I don't know Hiroyuki um well the uh, uh, I, I guess uh, uh, it, it's, it's kind of interesting because uh, uh, when we look at the fact that the uh, capitalism is in crisis and uh, uh, which means uh, I mean the basis of the contradiction is that the uh, the rich people are too rich right that's that's the core of the problem, right? Because they, they, they have too much money and uh, other people don't have money. So the economy and the capitalism, all the uh, mechanism is not working properly. So this is an interesting situation because it's a problem. It's a crisis. We have to do something. But when they are talking about that, they are the richest. They are the most powerful people. So, um, <laughs> what are we going to do? Okay, who's going to be able to do something? Uh, the rich people, right? So, <laughs> right, right, right. But, but that's, <laughs> I mean, exactly you know, yeah. this is, this is, I mean, you know, everything is upside down, right? In capitalism, because uh, they can orchestrate everything. And uh, we hear that, you know, it's capitalism in crisis. And some people say that capitalism is ending. But they are the richest right now. I mean, right. how, how it's gonna, you know, end? You know, they have all the money to manipulate people. Uh, come up with, come up with all the schemes, green capitalism. You know, the virus is taking over us, and all those things. And uh, um, so, if if we don't understand this basic mechanism of capitalism, I mean, the basic, 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 you know. Uh, we're not going to go anywhere, I think. Yeah, you know, um, uh, I, I, I have been noticing with the entertainment industry, with Hollywood, with, with what comes out, a new season of TV shows and, and new films and so forth, that increasingly there is, a, there is a growing emphasis in the narratives, comedy, drama, doesn't matter, uh, th that for lack of a better word, we would call aspirational based stories. And uh, these are, uh, take the form of the location, you know, and I heard a reviewer say this, oh, this is a, uh, this is a wonderful show. It's, it's our aspirational homes that we imagine, you know, and, and there's nothing critical in, in the voices that recognize this. That's what's strange is like, geez, maybe one day I can be on the top of this, this, pure, this grotesque pyramid of inequality. It's not ever <clears throat> a story about doing away with that inequality. Hollywood doesn't do those stories. They do stories about people whose dreams come true and they too get to be um, blood-sucking vampires at the top of the the capitalist heap. That's 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 what the the emphasis is, and uh, uh, you see, 
I mean, if you look at the locations, the 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 class of the characters in a particular show. I mean, there's very few shows of the underclass or the real working class um, every now and then. And when they try to do it, it's it's laughably um, cringeworthy, I have to say, um, Hollywood's idea of the working class. But there's very few of those. I mean, most shows, it's one of the reasons lawyer shows are so popular. Um, because they get to show lawyers who are very successful and rich living in wonderful apartments overlooking Park Avenue, wearing great clothes, driving BMWs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you, you, uh, you have very few shows um, where, where people live in um, depressing, cramped uh, tenements or something. It, it's just rarely... Um, and they don't last very long when they try. Um, Johan. Yeah, and, and when the, the working class is actually pres present, it's, it's being totally fetishized. And it's not like you ever um, have some kind of spotlight on, on the deeper structural issues. But I, I was just wondering if, if you and Corey maybe would like to say something about the, one, the, on the one hand, the, the expropriations in Canada and the, oh, the, the, new, the new legislation suggested in Norway. Oh, well, yeah, the, I mean, it hasn't been passed yet, this idea um, that, that Paul Steigen writes about. The bill has been introduced and there's been no media coverage of it. And it is just the idea that they can declare a state of emergency at any time. And that includes, presumably, I mean, it's written into it, um, measures like we see Trudeau um, floating now about seizing the bank accounts of protesters. That's extraordinary. You know, I mean, they are making any form of protest illegal. A criminal. It's a criminal offense now. And uh, uh, and yet, you know, I, I've not read um, in, in any mainstream paper or op-ed uh, anyone saying that it's it's criminal and illegal, but there may be some voices. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I've, I, this this is this it's timing 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 right i mean there the pandemic is sort of in quotation marks officially over um people are allowed to do all of these things although that's not really true you have to in many places to get into the super bowl you had to have a, a proof of vaccination or negative test result or something um you know and yet and yet, so that stuff is going, I, I posted a thing comparing, you know, what happened with the shoe bomber, you know, with his Nikes that were going to blow up um, decades back now. Uh, but yet we still take off our shoes going through security checkpoints at airports um, and no bomb ever went off. Nobody's shoes ever actually exploded anywhere, ever. It was a lone lunatic who had a bomb that they said, yeah, well, it wouldn't have really worked anyway <laughs> because he was a retard, you know, he did, he was, but it allowed for the implementation of this humiliation and disciplining of uh, the populace. Now you have to go through, I mean, I, I've been in airports, you see old ladies have to sit down and take off their shoes. I mean, this is, this is just gratuitous, 
um, humiliation, it's punishment, it's it's discipline, and and that's that's the real reason for its existence. It has nothing to do with security. The same way that the protocols for COVID had nothing to do with public health. Um, anyway, Corey. Yeah, I mean, these emergencies acts, unless we deal with these, we're just going to find them being brought out over and over and over again. Because the whole point of this is like, basically how to manage the livestock as we move forward. And, you know, they're basically pouring gasoline on all the social on all the social, um, you know, support systems that, that we have in place. And basically, you know, destroying this, this current um, social system moving into this new brutal, brutal landscape, right, that we're going into. And so we really, really have to be cautious and know what's happening behind the scenes. And it's just really interesting, too, because in Canada, because you have the the whole um, fake left, which is now fucking irrelevant, right? Like they are just um, they, they literally serve no purpose now except for uh, arm of capital, right? And like the uh, ruling class instrument. And so you have people who more and more, um, how do I explain this? I, I've heard people um, in conversation over the past week, especially labor people, union people, um, people that work in like wind turbine, um, that, that area, you know, who would identify as left-leaning now talking about um, and laughing as they're doing so talking about the con new conservative party leader in Canada and laughing saying, well, I never thought I'd be, you know, even listening to someone from that party, but there's, you know, and again, it's not left versus right. It, this is class war. This is um, right. bottom versus the top. And so now, because you have this huge vacuum, you have more people with nowhere to go. And then now you have a conservative um, leader telling these people who have been abandoned by, by you know, the fake left and, and, and basically ostracized by society. You, you have a leader telling them they'll give them, you know, what they're looking for. And so, I, again, you have um, people moving into these right parties, not that they're any different from the left parties. I mean, right. Is, right, is the Conservative Party any different than the NDP at this point and the Liberal Party, right? They're all serving the same um, people above them. Right. right. That oath that Trudeau read that is taken by every prime minister in every Commonwealth country. Right. That's not just Trudeau, right? <laughs> No. <clears throat> um, well, I mean, the 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 parties in the United States, of course, you only have two parties, but um, any of the parties in Norway and there's maybe six or seven um, at all significant parties. Um, uh, they care about what rich people think. They do not care about what poor people think. I mean, in the United States, um, for, you know, however much lip service is, is thrown out during, you know, election season, uh, those two parties don't care at all about the poor. And they don't care what the poor think and what their opinions are because they have no leverage. They have no power. They, their opinion does not matter. Um, people with property, uh, the owners of, of corporations, CEOs of corporations, the people who have inherited great wealth, 
um, the ruling class. That's who they listen to. And as as somebody said, that Russian, um, whose name now I have completely forgotten, and I mentioned him last podcast, said, you know, I, presidents are simply very highly paid clerks who look out for uh, the interests of people much more important than them. And, and that's true. It, I, electoral politics long ago ceased to have much relevance to, to anybody, and yet people will froth at the mouth hysterically about um, uh, whether you vote for Hillary or Trump, you know. And I understand that the differences, there are some differences that trickle down in certain areas, but they are relatively inconsequential when, when you look at you know, because the big expenditures go to defense, no matter who's president. Um, the banks are protected, no matter who's president. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and that's been so for decades and decades and decades and decades. So um, uh, the, it, it's a it, the, the whole process seems pointless to me at this point. I mean, I don't you know, I, certainly in the United States, it has it has become pointless. Um, I don't know, um, but but I wanted to to also touch on um, in in light of that talking about because this seizing the bank accounts of of protesters, um, the United States Biden just issued uh, I mean a couple of weeks ago statements about seizing freezing I guess they already did freezing the Afghan state. Um, mm. uh, money. It's, I forget if they did all of it or 40% of it or something, but because they were going to return it to the victims of 9-11, um, which, you know, the kid in the back of the room raises his hand and says, but, but shouldn't they then seize the bank accounts of the Saudis, you know? Um, uh, shut up, Jimmy. Uh, and yet nobody questions how irrational this is. Now, the the you know it's winter in afghanistan there is a a food shortage because of sanctions already this will further exacerbate um the the acute poverty they expect outbreaks of cholera and other diseases of insanitation um people are desperate there's going to be hundreds of thousands of deaths because of this and the answer that the white house spokesperson gave to a question about, you know, maybe an awful lot of people are going to suffer because of this move, uh, said, well, but, you know, all the Taliban have to do is, is uh, honor the rights of women. And, and you know, uh, that we're just, we're, until they honor, you know, the, the rights of women in, in Afghanistan, we're not going to give them any money and they're not going to eat. And I thought, right, well, if 80% of the population dies, um, you're probably not going to have to really worry about, about uh, gender equality or anything because um, the country is being destroyed. And, and we're seeing other countries, Libya was destroyed and, and Yemen is being destroyed. I mean, utterly turned into um, desperate uh, failed states in which um, disease is rampant. People are living on a dollar a day, if that. 
that children rub, rummage in, in garbage heaps to find plastic bottles to burn for warmth because it's desperately cold in Afghanistan in winter. Um, but what, you know, Americans, Americans are, you know, um, mostly completely unconcerned with this. I mean, this is certainly wouldn't be an election issue, you know, if, if it were election time. Um, nobody would question Biden about this. Uh, anyway, um, Johan? Sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> unless, unless Corey or, or Hiroyuki had something to do. Uh, I thought I'd just pick up on the tangent of, the, of surveillance, maybe. Yeah, let's, yeah, because we talked about that, yeah. Yeah, because I think this very possibility of, of of this arbitrary seizure of funds for for political dissent that you speak of, I think that's I mean the same principle. You have the same principle as this uh, worst dystopian social credit system if you connect this to the digital surveillance infrastructure. And I mean I've been thinking about how these kinds of structures influence our behavior and perception and. Your last pieces on your blog, John, I, I think you've been touching on this theme of the loss of transcendence a couple of times, titles like Capital Dreams or the Awareness of Nothing. Uh, I would say that the loss of transcendence, that's at the same time this uh, this loss of the meaning of, of a mundane everyday reality, because it means there is no hope, there is no vacation, there is no space to resist beautification, this this total weight of dominance of, of capital. And oh, I think I think surveillance really brings this point home. I think it's really surveillance is kind of tantamount to the loss of transcendence because surveillance makes this definite claim of having interpreted reality around us. You know, I would say it colonizes the social imaginary with this notion that reality is owned, it's fully known as it actually and definitely is. So how do you, what do you think about this perspective? No, I, when you, when you had written me about that, I thought this is, I mean, this is the kind of thing that proponents of, of technical innovation of AI, um, of, of, advanced automation and so forth they never kind of discuss is exactly what the um what the effects are going to be in 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 terms of group psychology and in terms of individual psychology and they of course overlap a great deal but um Mm. i think i think that this is another example i mean it's it's a really huge topic and it's a nuanced topic i mean it's a philosophical topic so you know it's hard on a podcast but i think it is important because this is one of the many um mechanisms by which people are indoctrinated without their knowing it there's certain things are normalized certain things are internalized certain structural uh uh, relationships are are um, are sort of cemented, and others are disappeared, and and uh, it's of course all of this is linked, and this would become an entire podcast onto itself. Are linked with with the destruction of education. I mean, um, 
you know, I have countless, I have so many friends who are teachers and all of them say the same thing, that they are being told more and more to simply train people to be good workers, um, effective workers. Nobody is meant to think abstractly, to think philosophically, um, to, to think about transcendence. And this is true in the arts. Um, and this is, this is one of the roles that, that um, identity-based um, uh, aesthetic product, if you want, identity-based stories and writing and and film, uh, does under guise of something quite different. But in fact, it is it is uh, making um, permanent a kind of a kind of superficiality. Uh, and 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 this is instrumental thinking again too. It's like it's also positivism. It's also the cultic aspect of this addiction to a certain kind of science, a certain kind of corporate-funded science, and 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 it's also tied in, of course, with with just how uh, the the hegemony of the smartphone, if you will, uh, that that people. People's behavior now is is connected to these little tiny keystrokes and this little tiny texting. Their body shape, I'm sure, is slowly morphing into one of, of you know, the spines of people are probably changing so that it will more better accommodate staring at a smartphone. Um, this stuff just happens incrementally, gradually over time, and and the the habituation to a world seen on screens. We've talked about this, you know, before a great deal, but when I write about the loss of interpretive ability, uh, it's because interpretation requires on some level, a confrontation with yourself, with mortality. And, and um, the blog post, I was, I was borrowing some from, from Samuel Weber had an essay and, and, uh, it's, it's what happens to movements when the West takes hold of them, whether it's psychoanalysis or, or anything. Uh, they, they are appropriated and turned into, to, they're neutralized. Any radical aspect is neutralized somehow. And so you have now in young people, the most reactionary generation of youth in, that I can, that I think must have ever existed. Um, and and the most the most obedient and the least kind of uh, um, they are also sexually conservative and the most fearful and there's a you know endless endless articles and statistics and surveys about levels of depression in teens and so forth um, because they feel isolated and and atomized and alone and it's a society of of um, extreme loneliness, I think, at this point, because community has been very consciously engineered out of the picture. Um, yeah, go ahead, Yara. Yeah, I was just going to pose the question to, to Corey and Hiroyuki. I would like to like frame it something like we're, we're alone in this uh, kind of digital panopticon where we are constantly having to guess at the mindset of kind of capricious and, uh, and abusive parent that going to punish us if we interact with other people in the wrong way. I mean, 
we're not really going to be free to to interpret and and create um, individually from our own heart hearts, you know, in this situation. Does this uh, description like ring a bell with you guys? Yeah, go ahead, Hiroyuki. Uh, what, what do you mean? I'm not sure, man, but but look, we're, we're in this surveillance panopticon constantly under the threat of being punished by by a by an abusive parent that's going to take away our, our funds if we, if we interact with each other in the wrong way. I mean, how does that shape our social relations among each other, you think? Or do you do you, do you recognize this description? Do you think it's uh, well? I, I can sort of jump in on that just for um, a quick comment. Um, so when I was going through this Canadian digital identity um, program that's been in effect basically since 2012, that's actually partnered with our federal government and um, many provinces. Um, I came across one of the partners, and this is you know right out of Orwell's 1984 type of um, what's it called Newspeak. A partner is actually called I Comply. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I, I Comply. And so I found I comply within this digital identity thing. They talk actually about terrorist financing. Okay. And so today's terrorist, or sorry, today's trucker is tomorrow's terrorist. And this whole thing that's happening now is, you know, sort of what John was saying, it's normalizing this. So in it, it actually says on um, terrorist financing uses funds for an illegal um, political purpose, but the money is not necessarily derived from illicit proceeds. So that's exactly sort of, um, you know, what we see around the framing of the truckers protest. But what happens here, as we know, even though, you know, you've got the arm of empire, arm of capital, um, you know, faux left cheering this all on, this will spill over to marginalized groups, right? Anyone anti-war, land defenders, etc. All those outside the very, very tightly controlled nonprofit industrial complex will um, now be at risk of putting in, be, being put into this frame as a, an actual terrorist. So this will give the Canadian government ironclad rule over First Nations and um, and the uh, Native ancestral land that that you know the state occupies, right? Canada's on stolen land, and so even though the First Nations, like what I was talking about, the the Mohawk War Chief, they see this and understand it. This is all somehow being lost, right, mm-hmm. on, on most of people, especially those that self-identify as us. So this is like really, really dangerous territory. And it is the same old thing with, um, you know, um, dousing, um, you know, of our social structures with gasoline and lighting them on fire, right? Again, (laughs) um, go into the metaverse if you want companionship, go into the metaverse if you want sex, go into the metaverse if you want to be successful and have a good job, you can live in there, right? Um, This is becoming, um, you know, that's where it's all headed. No, it's absolutely a, like a Philip K. Dick novel. I mean, it, it really is. And and um, I'm pretty sure by the time they impose a, a universal basic income for people, which will be the, the final the final step in the in the pauperization of the working class, uh, they'll probably hand out psychotropic drugs with that monthly check um, so that people can sit and 
stupefied in front of their screen um, more easily. Uh, uh, but but look at you know the what amazes me are the people who should know better. A lot of the leftists we know, people you know that that get a lot of things correct about about the pandemic, but but always, and this goes back to the beginning of what we talked about today. The, but basically, accept the idea that this was a health emergency. That's the that's the fulcrum um, for for this entire narrative, I think, and for what has happened is. You, they didn't question that this was a health emergency. They still don't question in the face of overwhelming evidence um, that it was not a health emergency. And people say, yes, but 20,000 people died here. And, 20, you know, people die. Old people especially die. Um, and, and when you have most of the deaths taking place occurring in people that have already exceeded the average life expectancy, um, it 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 should make you stop and think that maybe you know the original premise of this entire two-year spectacle was flawed was dishonest was the lie um these are this is the these are governments and institutions and and ngos and individual influencers who have lied in the past repeatedly for decades they have lied and yet because for some reason when it's presented as a health emergency uh it's believed and i don't fully i don't really have a particularly um cogent explanation for this but but that seems to be the premise so that somebody was arguing with me the other day and said, yes, but, uh, you know, these worn out, you know, the, the healthcare workers and doctors who were exhausted and overrun hospitals. And I said, okay, give me a specific hospital that was overrun with, you know, COVID patients. I, Cause I can't find any, I just want one. And maybe somebody can provide that, you know, listening to this, they'll write, Oh, it was, uh, you know, butt crack hospital and yonkers they, they were overrun uh you know but i don't know because i haven't found one yet um what happened was hospitals prepared for a huge wave of covid patients that never materialized they sent people home um who you know had scheduled cancer scans and treatments for diabetes and hypertension didn't get those treatments subsequently died or got much sicker um that's what happened and and uh most people were told unless you're deathly ill with covid don't go to the doctor don't go to the hospital that's what happened in norway um i had a a a procedure I was supposed to have nothing serious at all, but it got postponed like a year. So, you know, this is, this is the fulcrum um, that, that the, the entire debate kind of teeters around. Um, was this a health? John, John, it went to, it went to telehealth, right? I mean, I remember I had a, a something wrong with my tooth that in the middle of this and my dentist <laughs> actually wanted me to take a picture and send it to him. So I just took a picture and it's been black. It's just like a black picture. And it's like, Oh, here you go. Right. Like complete failure. The telehealth wow. is a disaster. 
right? No, of and course that, it is. And people, a lot of people don't even know, you know, what that is yet. Right. Well, in a country like the United States, where there, there's no universal health care anyway, um, people are just accustomed to, to not getting treatment when they're sick. I mean, unless they're very, very sick or their child is very, very sick, um, they don't think about going to the doctor because who can afford it? You know, um, it's like the price of people stopped having children. I mean, one of the reasons is economic. In the United States, you can't afford to have a child. Um, I certainly wouldn't have been able to have the, the children I've had in Norway um, if I still lived in the U.S. It'd be impossible. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's it's this is but this is the this is the key point, I think, when you discuss with people um, and, and you try to have a debate, uh, there is a there is a fixation on but so many people died. And and part of it is we're talking about a culture in which death has been buried and repressed and hidden uh, for so long that people forget people die, I think. And if they do sort of in the back of their head recognize that people die, uh, it the experience itself is buried and repressed to some degree. So so you know the, there is a there is a denial was a was already in place this denial and so selling people on you know a dangerous pandemic um was 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 easier because they were so preconditioned in in that particular way yeah go ahead, go ahead here you keep oh um <laughs> well what can i say right i mean this is really uh, um yeah, I'm. I'm really. Uh, I don't really know what to say because um, it it really proves the fact that the uh, um, the brutality of capitalism is uh, manifesting itself. People do not have ways to go against. Um, uh, you can't even talk about it, and um, uh, I mean, you know. Um, I mean, this is something we need to face and um, we need to discuss uh, thoroughly so that we have a firm grasp of the fact that they have this system is very destructive. It, it reduces people into uh, beings that are, um, you know, bouncing around in, in a framework without their own um, will. And in the process, we lose uh, knowledge, wisdom, history. Uh, we lose nature, uh, all kinds of things. And eventually we'll disappear as a species, I guess. And this, this is, um, so, you know, when you start to think about something like this, it's, um, uh, very depressing <laughs> and well, uh, you know it's it's really uh, 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 and uh, you know also it comes down to the same um, idea you know we, we need to have some sort of uh, uh, organized uh, institution that systematically structurally attack this system 
Right. Uh, we, yeah, I was, just gonna, I was just going to say that because somebody brought up something about, I don't mean to interrupt you, I want you to continue, but that there's no left party. There's no real left party. And as threadbare and bankrupt as electoral politics um, are, it would still be useful in the education of people, the deprogramming of, mm. of such heavily indoctrinated, you know, such a heavily indoctrinated populace. If you had a leftist party that was a genuine leftist party that genuinely rejected the system we're living under, that said, I'm genuinely an anti-capitalist system. I really want an end to inequality. I don't want to watch aspirational dramas that are empty fairy tales. I want to understand what I can concretely do to step outside of that system. But, you know, those are the very voices that are removed, of course. So. Right. I mean, for good reason, because that's that's the uh, that's the, the worst enemy for the uh, ruling class. And um, um, so it's a very, very difficult situation. And I don't think more pain, more oppression would lead to uprising uh, that manifest in to um, some kind of revolution without the knowledge of how it works. No, you know, no. like like in Japan, they, they had this um, uh, nuclear meltdown. Like you know, they they had three uh, nuclear plants exploding, I mean, and you <laughs> think that they would realize that if you follow the imperial imperatives and go along with it over and over and over and listen and obey, you will get fucked up, and <laughs> you, you you would think they would do something about it, and you know the. the 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 meltdowns, you know, the, the, the plants are still there. It, you know, it's spewing all the things. And, the, 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 you know, so the pain yeah. and oppression, you know, more of those things wouldn't do any good. You know, the, the, the people are going to be weaker and more stupid. And um, <laughs> so we, we have to have the grasp of the mechanism, why and how. You know, so. Well, this is the thing with with the Great Reset and Build Back Better and everything that I feel gets missed and, and needs to be pointed out uh, more frequently. And that is we have, you know, things like nuclear plants, energy plants that um, are built by the lowest bidder. Right. Because that's right. the principle of capitalism. Um that's not the way to ensure maximum safety, right? It's it's a way to guarantee there's probably going to be accidents. So so the basic mechanism of capitalism is 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 exploitive and it, it manufactures poverty. You know, as Parenti used to say, you know, we know this because most of the planet is capitalist and most of the planet is very poor. Uh it it if, if you can't explain to people that, that the, the, the very premise of the system they live in is, is, is going to uh, likely result in suffering, disappointment, failure, and, and misery for them and their families, um, they are likely not going to be one of the lucky uh, anomalies that that occasionally come out and then Hollywood makes a movie about them. 
um, the odds are, you know, it's very possible you could end up homeless. Your children could be living in the back of your Chevy pickup and under a freeway overpass. That's not far-fetched because more and more thousands and thousands of people are living just like that. But I think that's partly what we're seeing in uh, the desperate measures of government's ruling class, the propertied class, are desperate and they are terrified of the massive social unrest. There was just an article about the, and Russell Brand did a video about it, in fact, uh, about the ruling class, the very, very rich buying up property and building survival bunkers, very luxurious survival bunkers, but uh, because they feared a, a complete breakdown of civil society. Uh, so, so the people in charge of these things and who control media and keep feeding this 24-7 stream of, of um, they're the people that produce misinformation, they're also terrified. You know, they have a lot to lose. And there's increasingly more and more people in the world who have nothing to lose. And that is how revolutions happen. Uh, I don't know if, if one will happen, uh, but I don't think it's impossible because I think even with this surveillance panopticon that Johan describes and the extreme measures of control and tracking and, as Corey says, the, the herding of the livestock into more controllable small enclaves, even with all of that, that stuff doesn't work perfectly. And um, none of the, the AI and the algorithmic predictions for submission in the populace um, are, are necessarily going to work at all, I don't think. Johan. Mm. Yeah, on, on that note, I think there's a really strong link between um, what we said about surveillance to how, how neoliberalism was established as the sort of a contemporary super ideology. Uh, I, I think, you know, our participation in, in spectacular surveillance actually helped uh, make neoliberalism some kind of master narrative because, you know, the, the perspective of surveillance has to be that of the market because it always focuses on, on some sort of exchange value. It either sells you something or generates value or protects it. And as surveillance becomes the central ontological metaphor of our world, we're going to take on the values of, of this uh, market Darwinism. That's basically what neoliberalism is. Uh, and this digital screen life, it intensifies all of this. It's kind of allows us to vicariously participate in this huge digital surveillance system. So we become integrated into something like a, an imaginary subject of surveillance. And you then internalize its perspective and its retelling of reality as something objective. But we can choose not to submit. I mean, we have we have the option of, of not participating in this theater. I mean, it's it's really that simple at the end of the day. Well, I, I think that's a um, I think that's a, a a really important, almost profound um, description and 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 insight. The 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 subject the figure on the surveillance camera, the figure on the CCTV camera watched by, you know, um, a technician of authority um, mm -hmm. is, is 
is part of the subject formation of modern human beings. And, and uh, I have said for a long time, if, if you, you look at um, very, very early films, this was true in that film, what is it, Dawson City? There were early photographs, moving films of people that didn't know they were being filmed by a camera because they didn't know what a camera was. And people behave differently than when you see people on the street today being filmed because people are all performing the role of themselves today. Um, they, they are acutely aware that they're always being filmed. I mean, if you live in London, you are filmed all the time, something like 300 times a day, your image appears on, on closed circuit TV. Uh, so, so absolutely this is part of the, of the, of the collective imaginary now is I am that figure on the closed circuit uh, surveillance camera. Um, and that's a terrifying thought, I think. Um, all right. Any, anybody else? I have no idea how long we've been. Talking. I don't know. I think John and, and guys, like I was thinking, just I, I really believe we don't understand how deeply, deeply, deeply colonized we actually are, like especially in, in Canada and all these um, things sort of, I'll try to explain it around whiteness. Um, so for example, imagine, I mean, I keep thinking about this oath that, that Trudeau um, took, right? It's on, it's, on, it's on press. It's only been viewed 20,000 times on YouTube. Um, it's right there. And so imagine if that was, for example, Maduro taking such an oath to, to the queen or to Biden or whoever, Right. Imagine that his his constituents, Venezuelans, would never have it. They would drag him out and hang him by the lamppost or whatever. Right. Yeah. There's no way. So imagine Morales. Imagine these revolutionary leaders on um, doing something like that. But because um, you know Trudeau, imagine if Trudeau did that to the president of China, took that oath or perhaps um, Russia, right? Or, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, Middle Eastern leader people would, would probably freak out here, but because it's done to the queen, right? To this white royal family, we don't see any issue with it. And over and over, like this whole idea of left for, for ages now, we just didn't really realize how deeply embedded, how deeply embedded it was they've identified with people they've identified for for ages since the whole time i've been writing they identify with capital they identify not with um people um you know revolutionaries on the street in other countries really fighting for their very survival they identify with bill mckibben they identify with naomi klein they identify with greta thunberg right on um, yeah. people that, that have very cushioned lives that are very very privileged and have you know what i'm saying so <clears throat> yeah you know something i not, don't mean to interrupt you at all but this yeah. i'm going to link and people should read there are things wrong with this book there are mistakes i think but jonathan beller's the message is murder touches on the very idea that the technology that was invented in the industrial revolution all of it was inherently racialized that it was a part of the colonial project inescapably um, uh, connected to it, and that the camera, for example, was was uh, a a photographic implement to reinforce 
the the colonial master's relationship to the slave. Um, it's much more complex, his argument, than what I'm saying. But it's a very convincing argument that 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 the colonial, I mean, the slave trade lasted 350 years. Um, that's a long time. And uh, it shaped uh, the human consciousness, certainly white European and North American consciousness, consciousness to an um, unimaginable degree. And I think Guy Debord understood this in an entirely different sort of register. Uh, but, but it's a, but, but I think that's a really good point um, that that Corey makes that that so much of this stuff. I mean, look at you know U.S. allies are Saudi Arabia, a medieval theocracy that beheads women for being witches, that beheads teenagers for you know I don't know potential homosexuality. Yet there are allies, and nobody freaks out. Um, the cartoons Disney keeps turning out cartoons of white princes and and princesses and oh well but they're woke now so the prince and princess are darker hued as if that changed anything yeah. they're just dark skinned white aristocracy um, portraying the same mm. you know caste and class relationship uh, this is this is um, you, you, other ally Israel, you know, an apartheid state that's carrying out an incremental genocide against Palestinians. Uh, that's okay. That's okay. There's sort of mild dissent, but people take it for granted. These these images of inequality that are everywhere. Colonial imagery is very retro and very popular on Madison Avenue. Um, you see it everywhere. Nobody makes, uh, you know, bats an eyelash about it, but it is literally everywhere. These are the things that I feel somehow people must be, you know, we have to pull their coat and awaken them to some of this somehow. It's, you know, I don't know that I'm the person to do it or that we are, but, but that's, that's one of the projects of liberation, I think. Okay. Uh, any final thoughts? Yo, I just think that it's it's really uh, 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 there's one thing that you know people don't understand things uh, as as it is uh, the uh, the class structure and uh, accumulation of wealth um, imposing um, the ruling class value and all those things, but at the same time, a lot of people do understand. I think it's it. You know, I mean, it's like a mafia enterprise. It, uh, people do know that they will be in trouble if they don't follow. So this right. is really, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, and especially for the people who are oppressed, I think they know, they know. And um, absolutely, it, yeah. Um, the it's, um, it's a very difficult situation and and not having the social relationships that are based on reality this is a huge thing you know that the, the we talk to people on the internet we don't even know who we are you know the, the right. ones we are <clears throat> i mean 
during those uh, uh, the wars on the screen. And, um, you know, I mean, and that's the basis of the capitalism as well. We are deprived of our social relationship as we are deprived of mode of production. So, um, you know, it's just a basic claim, but it's uh, it's a deep, it's a, you know, like Corey just said, it's the colonization is so deep. We are born in it and we grow up in it. And uh, um, sure. No, the know. language, the language we use is is shaped by it. Everything is shaped by it. And, right. and that's what's very hard. And but I think, you know, there's a tendency and I'm guilty of it. All of us are guilty of it to some degree. Um of making clear that you know we're talking about the uh, a, you know a huge chunk of of america white america essentially but not entirely uh, the white bourgeoisie the at least partially educated badly educated white bourgeoisie um because the the lumpen proletariat are probably the most aware people in terms of what we're talking about these un people understand what oppression is right. um in the same way that you know uh coal tan miners in namibia or something they're perfectly aware of um who has the boot on their neck uh but but we're talking about the people that make the no most noise in media it's an inescapable um it's 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 a problem when one you know critiques everything, but these are the people that influence policy largely. These are the people that own media platforms and and uh, are influence a lot of what happens in the world uh, because politicians listen to them. They own more things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But these are also people. This this white educated bourgeoisie are also the most psychologically damaged, the most demented, the most addicted of antidepressants and, and psychotropics and all kinds of pharmacological solutions to their acute anxiety and fear and misery. They are the most unhappy people in the world. And I actually happen to think the very, very rich are miserable too. Um, uh, people... I, you know, I'm a minority saying that, but but I do. I don't think Elon Musk is a happy man. You know, I don't think Bill Gates is happy uh, or he wouldn't have taken multiple trips on Air Lolita with Jeffrey Epstein. You know, that's not a sign of happiness um, anyway. OK, uh, last thoughts from anybody. I feel like I've babbled on an awful lot. Tonight. I think I think, you know, what, what you just said is kind of uh, important because uh, if we all I mean, you know, if we all just sit down and talk about it and uh, we will probably come to conclude that the whole thing sucks. <laughs> right. And, I mean, and we are not supposed to do it because we're segregated according according to class, you right. know, so. <laughs> understanding the situation is crucial and how to reach out and uh, uh, develop uh, solidarity, you know, beyond the class line. Um, this, is, this is the project. This is the project. Um, and, and this is the moment to, to, to implement that project somehow more, uh, more acutely and to be, you know, as George Jackson said, put aside your disagreements. Mao said that too. Talk yeah. to people about you know, right, right. Um, the narrative is flawed, guys. You know, it, it this wasn't a public health emergency. Mm -hmm. it, it was the next stage in um, 
the transition of, of capitalism. It was a, a engineered global depression, monopolization of retail, et cetera, et cetera. So all the things we've talked about. Uh, it was not a deadly viral outbreak. Um, there was a virus, yeah, people died, yeah, the elderly, some people got sick. I know people who got sick, um, but I know people that get sick from the flu and you know, mm. diabetes and all kinds of things. Okay, last thoughts, Johan? Yeah, and it's, it's dependent on our active participation to continue, that's, that's my point. Yeah. Mm. Um, okay, uh, anything else, Corey? Um, no, maybe next time we can talk about sort of the resurgence of the HIV scare that sort of that's um, a good topic. Let's talk yeah. about that next time. Yeah. I need to I need to bone up on that a bit. Okay. But yeah, that's not happenstance, is it? That's um that's by design, the introduction of that topic. Okay, guys. Uh thanks very much. I hope Varun is back next time. Thanks to Jack Lipman. Um, Wonder Boy and Man About Town in Los Angeles. Uh, and, and I'll talk to you guys all soon. Yeah? Yeah. Yes.